Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There are a number of laureates. They are freshly minted and celebrated each and every year. Michael Spence, I would suggest, is laureate on the study of information and risk. What we know, you hear Dr. Elarian talk about unknowns, the knowns, this, that, and the other thing. Some of this, a study of uh, Oxford University of years ago coming out of the wonderful heritage of game theory in England. Michael Spence joining us on today's Clear and Present Unknowns and knowns as well. What a time of distortion. Step back 10 years, Professor Spence, how did we get to this wildly distorted moment? Well, I I mean, you know, somebody could probably write several books on this, Tom, but I think the first thing was that we developed serious imbalances in the pre-crisis era, and that was to simplify leverage, you know, loans that shouldn't have been created, followed by asset price uh, increases that shouldn't have happened, uh, and it fell apart. Uh, then I think the rest of the story is that we, is, is part of what Julian Robertson said. You know, we took some of the pain in America, political and other, in recapitalizing banks and, you know, stepping in, um, and that, that served us well. But it's it, and, it, and, and other places are struggling uh, with slightly different structural conditions. But basically, the, the distortions that worry people now are the ones that have to do with reliance on interest rates, as if that's going to restore inflation, restore gr- real growth, and so on. It, it, I think by now, I think a reasonable conclusion is it's not going to work. We can go any number of ways here, but I want to go down Madison Avenue to the J.P. Morgan Library, where basically J.P. Morgan wrote a check to the nation in the panic of 07. Let's be clear, there was real carnage among the different financial crises. Chris Whalen has a fabulous one volume on the financial disasters and the financial uh, upheaval of America. Where did the theory come from that we weren't going to do the carnage of 07? Was there an academic thinking or was this brought on by the politicians that we could be relatively pain-free, as Mr. Robertson mentioned last evening? You know, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I agree. You, you, you have to distinguish between the initial response, which was it was important and better than some previous crises where, you know, they let banks fail uh, and, and produce more damage than was necessary. So that part I don't question. But how we got to the notion that central banks can really get all the, got all the work done. Mm-hmm. Or what, what, Tom, it was worse than that. You know, the, the immediate post-crisis narrative was, well, we avoided a disaster, now we'll have a normal cyclical recovery. Right, V-shaped. Yeah, 
Well, that was nonsense. I mean, you know, the PIMCO folks produced this concept called the new normal. Lots of sensible people said there's enough balance sheet damage that can't happen. So then we kind of went along, and now I think people are starting to realize that it's even more serious than that. When I look at the growth forecasts by international institutions, by the Fed, by the Congressional Budget Office, they're on the high side every time, every year, every quarter. Within, and, I, and I think people are starting to conclude we don't have a model that describes... A, a number of ways to go here, but uh, yeah. there's just so much to talk about. I want to talk about the identification of inflation, less inflation, disinflation. The fear, as Gary Schilling and others have written about, outright deflation, and some would call that continental Europe is the example there. And then there's this odd thing, reflation which I don't believe there's a, def- there's a de- definition. How do you define what we're seeing governments attempt to do, which is to politically and through policy reflate their economies? I, I have trouble making sense of the term reflation. Uh, my take on this is that we are in an environment where it's very difficult to generate inflation, and it goes right back to aggregate demand. We have a savings glut, we have a shortage of aggregate demand, it is constraining growth, and it is an enormous headwind um, in terms of trying to generate even inflation and hit the targets. And I don't think that headwind's going to go away until we either do something or evolve in such a way yeah. that demand is actually roughly equal to our productive capacity. My favorite textbook on this is Pentecost, which is a fairly obscure textbook out of England with beautiful charts, just just, sort of like Saul Estrin's work, just gorgeous, gorgeous charts. I believe if Michael Spence talks about aggregate demand, there's something on the other side called aggregate supply. Right. Is there too much stuff out there right now? Yeah. I mean, relative to, I mean, relative to the demand, the answer is yes, in many places. You could argue that the United States is near some peculiar form of full employment with no inflationary pressure. But that's not true in Europe, and it's not true in many other parts of the world. So, yeah, there's, a, um, there's an excess supply situation. Where is the technological progress to come along to help us in our disequilibrium? You arguably helped invent the miracle of California technology, Silicon Valley technology. A lot of people think it doesn't create jobs like Ford Motor Company of another time and place. Where's Michael Spence's new technology? Well, I, you know, I think eventually that tech, the, let's call it digital technology. You're wearing an um, Apple Watch. You're looking, you, it's, it matches your suit. Yeah, it's no, very good. Yeah, no, I like these because they link up to the, look, um, let's take, let's call it digital technology because it's been documented well to affect um, jobs and so on. I think the long run effect is, is highly positive, but the transitions are A, long and B, difficult. Because industries have to restructure, people have Mm -hmm. to change their behavior, people have to shift and do something different. We're, We're heading toward an economy that's much more a service economy than we even have now. And so I don't think, my personal view is our immediate problem isn't really that. I'm not trying to dismiss the notion that low productivity growth should be simply ignored. My best guess is it's the transition problem. But other people, and and it's pretty hard to put weights on the various explanations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, fir- the first round of digital revolution in the 70s and 80s, we didn't see the productivity effects until the 90s. Right. So we may be just doing this again. Um, 
low productivity growth affects medium and long-term growth, but that's not the real problem now. The real problem is uncertainty, low investment. You'd look at it. I mean, in private investment's muted. Uncertainty's high. Private investment in China has fallen to near zero. Right. I mean, it's, it's just... Well. I mean, I don't have a you know clear map of how we're going to get out of here, but it's pretty clear, you know, what our problem is. Michael McKee on a plane to Dublin with important interviews tomorrow on the true courage and success of the Dublin and Irish economic experience. Experience. I'm in New York with me, Scarlett Fu, surviving a return to the ice last night of the New York Rangers. I didn't know a single person skating. Well, I mean, the goalie wasn't familiar either. No, just kidding. Um, it's the preseason, so you know pre-season. we're not getting too worked up about it just yet. Yeah. They have a lot of problems to fix, and hopefully they'll get that done in the next, what, two weeks, three which, weeks? Which defines Italy, which is a good reason to go there with Michael Spence, a laureate of New York University. We talked to Luigi Zingala, Scarlett, uh, about his Italy, but it's also Michael Spence's Italy. He spends a lot of time during the year there, and has been a real student of their really interesting economic politics. Why don't you start with Renzi and the view forward? Right. Well, Matteo Renzi has decided, or Italy has decided on a date for the referendum, which is going to be in early December, Professor Spence. Um, This feels like a Brexit vote all over again in that you have a political leader who seems to have gambled his political future on a referendum that has become become conflated with how he's doing as opposed to the issue at hand. No, I think that's right. And just recently, he's been trying to pull away from that. So early on, he said, essentially, if if the referendum doesn't go my way, isn't passed, then I'll quit. And now he isn't saying that anymore. So I think most people view that earlier statement as a mistake, and he should not tie his own uh, political future to a referendum. The referendum is important, but imperfect, and Italians are sort of torn mm-hmm. um, a little bit on on the most important provision of it is to get rid of the excess baggage, and essentially it sort of, without actually doing it, eliminates the Senate and creates a government that is largely run by the lower house. That being the case, is there a link to the banking crisis in Italy? Does the passage of this referendum have any implications for how Italy goes about fixing its banks? Well, it it will, yes, indirectly, because it will simplify governance. On the other hand, you know, one of the problems Italy has is, is, you know, with respect to important elements of policy, like whether you bail out banks, it's constrained by the structure of the European Union. I actually think this is a mistake. I mean, you know, if it gets serious enough, I think they're going to have to, you know, recapitalize the banks just as we did. And the same is true in Germany. I mean, you know, the Germans can say whatever they want, but they're not going to sit and watch Deutsche Bank go, you know, over the cliff. Are there different rules for rich countries in rescuing their banks versus less rich countries? I mean, does Germany have a, a play by a different set of rules? Well, it has. I mean, because they did put money into banks in the immediate sort of their version of the crisis in 2010. Um, and then we've now decided that subsidizing and, you know, against EU rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of inconsistency. Look, look but the, the main difference between big, rich countries and small ones is some of the small ones like Switzerland, which is not in the EU, I mean in the, Euro, in the Eurozone, have banks that are way too big for their public balance sheet to take care of. And that's a problem that we don't have here in America, but it's all over the place in Europe. And we have some of that, had some of that in Italy. So you get a, a, a medium-sized country with a gigantic 
bank with a global footprint that gets into trouble, who's going to bail it out? The right answer to that is the European Union has to come right. together and deal with it on a unified basis, but they haven't done that We're yet. We're not there yet. And, and as you and I talked about earlier this morning, the idea of money illusion, what bails us out is inflation. Mm -hmm. Olivier Blanchard, of a small school professor up in Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, was a pinata of the year four or five years ago in economics for suggesting we needed to impute a lot higher inflation into the system. He looks wise over the last number of years. Do we need to be much more aggressive about an inflation strategy to have money illusion assist our financials? Yes. Yeah. How do you do it? What's the prescription to generate inflation? You have to deal with the demand problem and make it complementary to monetary policy. If you just do it with monetary policy and in every single market there's a shortage of demand, nobody's going to raise the, at least when I studied the, economics, yeah. you know, prices didn't go up when there was excess supply. What about the pseudo-fiscal policy known as helicopter money? Professor Bunchart said on this show it's a scam. Yeah, I've heard him say that. Look, I'm not an expert enough in macroeconomics. I don't have any doubt that a government... Did you, did you hear that, Scarlett? He, he was so He's humble. Not a, a Nobel laureate who's not an expert in macroeconomics. Who that's, is that? That's like saying you saying you're not an expert in hockey. So you're not going to. You, 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 what's your thoughts on helicopter money, Professor? Quickly. I kind of agree with um, Olivier, but I don't have any doubt that a government that's willing to run large deficits and print money, and you know, to do the expenditure side can generate well, inflation, but I'm not sure it's a good never idea. Never enough time. Michael Spence from New York University. Thank you so much. and Tom King, thrilled to have you with us today. We are uh, here at our world headquarters of Bloomberg Market's most influential summit. What's great about this, Scarlett, a worldwide uh, conference on economics, finance, investment from Hong Kong over to those important interviews in London, and then we come over to New York this morning. And the best part of it, of course, is this is the busiest time of the year. Everyone is back from the summer. They're getting ready to fit in, what, six months of work into two months before November, before uh, Thanksgiving starts and everything slows down once again. So there's a lot to discuss. Yeah. There's a lot to discuss. Charles Plosser joins us now. He is the uh, retired head of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve. Charles Plosser enjoying 3-0 and Philadelphia Eagles to get the season started. He joins us from Washington this morning. Professor Plosser, good morning. Bill Gross called Janet Yellen's last press conference confused to be blunt. I was stunned at the conflation of a Fed struggling with theory. What is the present theory of your Federal Reserve System? <laughs> Tom, it's good to be with you again. It's been a, been a few a while, but it's good. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I think, the, I think the Fed is challenged. They're having a hard time trying to figure out what to do. I think they lack a strategy uh, from my perspective. And, um, and so I think they're struggling with a situation that in part, they concocted for themselves. So I think they're they're having a, a hard time. Um, but as as you can imagine, I wish they'd just sort of get on with it and quit futzing around so much. Quit futzing around so much. Yet there was some dissent at the last FOMC meeting. What does that pretend for the November meeting and more importantly for December? 
Well, I think two things are important to, uh, to understand about dissent. I was on that side several times during my career there. I think dissent is important. Anytime you reach some kind of turning point or a, a difficult time, a decision, you expect to see more argument, more debate within the committee about what's the right step and when should it be taken. So I think this is clearly reflecting you know, differences of opinion. And I think to have dissent is one way of communicating to the markets and the public the nature of the debates that are going on within the committee. So I think actually that's healthy. Whether that means they'll react in uh, November or react in December, I, I think uh, uh, it's hard to tell at this point because uh, obviously the data can change. But right now in this last meeting, if you think about it, what they said was there was no data between June and September except risk were reduced, volatility came down, uh, the, the things that they cited as concerns uh, seem to have diminished directly. Uh, Janet Yellen said the case for a rate hike has increased, but we're going to wait. So uh, what kind of strategy is that? And they couldn't even point to any data. In fact, everything they pointed to suggested a rate hike was, was coming, but they just didn't do it. So I think that reflects challenges within the committee. It reflects, as I said a few moments ago, uh, the lack of a strategy that's really driving their decision-making. And I think that's problematic for them. Do you think it's as simple as the Fed has a hard time generating inflation, or any monetary policymaker for that matter, yet we know how to bring down inflation? We just don't know how to generate it. Well, I don't think that's quite true. I think it's true that they've had a hard time generating as much inflation as they would like. But uh, we do know how to generate. History is full of examples where central banks have generated inflation. So, and, and frankly, the Fed hasn't had to fight inflation in a while. So it's not clear that it's as asymmetric as you suggested. No. But nonetheless, uh, I think uh, the Fed would like to see inflation a little bit higher. But we're in a world where we're pretty close to what might be considered full employment. Core inflation, CPI inflation is, ab is above 2%. And uh, so not all the inflation numbers, at least in the United States, are as right. discouraging as somebody, well, some people make them out to be. That's where I wanted to go with Charles Plosser. We'll talk about the vectors of inflation. And certainly, as he mentioned, some of the tea leaves migrating to a Plosserian worry. That's Scarlett. Plosserian worry? Plosserian worry is a higher inflation. Is that, is that in the textbooks? It is in the textbooks, particularly out of Rochester. Scarlett, we are here. It, we're in the food court. Volmer put us between the bananas and the Cheez-Its. Yeah, That's I, a pretty good place to be. I had to save your laptop from being spilled on by the coffee cup. It's it's well, almost there. We're there, but it's very. the food is so close here versus our <laughs> It's studios. dangerous, isn't it? It's very dangerous. Dangerous today is the level of conversation from Hong Kong over to London and then to uh, New York, our Bloomberg market's most influential summit. These are important conversations on economics, finance, investment. I thought Axel Weber in London uh, this morning was really timely, uh, given that linkage of Bundesbank to Draghi mm -hmm. and also what's going on with Deutsche Bank. Especially when you look at what's going on with Deutsche Bank, given that it feels like it's been driving financial markets th this entire week. Uh, as goes Deutsche Bank, so goes equities and the rest of the risky assets. Yeah, with us, Charles Plosser in our Washington studios. Uh, Professor Plosser, of course, for years associated with the University of Rochester and then his constructive work at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve is, well, Charles Plosser, why do we clear markets? Think Hayek 1945. Why do we clear markets and Europe can't? 
Well, I think the first place you look for something like that is in sort of government controls and regulations. Sometimes, uh, sometimes investors, sometimes corporate executives, sometimes governments, sometimes consum- consumers don't like the outcomes of cleared markets. <laughs> and so they use government to, uh, to alter those outcomes to various groups' advantages. And I think that's, uh, that's usually the source of the problem from my perspective. When you say clear markets, Tom, elaborate. Well, I would say clear markets is just move on, clear the balance sheets out and all the challenges uh, that are there and rebuild anew. It's a traditional thing in capitalism and Scarlet, certainly here we have a new capitalism. We have a new capitalism. Charles Plaster, do, are we clearing markets now the way we did before the financial crisis? Have regulations changed our ability to do so? Well, that's, that's a little bit hard to answer. I certainly, regulations have changed the way markets function. I mean, people sometimes talk about money and politics, but when politics rules, rules supply and demand and sets prices and the best way for companies and investors to uh, make money and be successful depends on what the government tells them rather than, some, and rather than the true clearing of markets, uh, you, you get a lot of money floating around trying to change those outcomes, and that's a very... Um, uh, very bad thing, very difficult thing. So regulation has grown substantially over the last 10 or 12 years, and it continues to grow. And I think that sometimes regulation works can be used, but sometimes it just clogs the system up. It just clogs the system. And, of course, today we have Janet Yellen, the Fed Chair, Tom, speaking before Congress. I did not know that. Yes. She begins speaking at 10 a.m. It's before the House Financial Services Committee on the topic of supervision and regulation. Well, anything Janet Yellen says from here on is is interesting. Charles Plosser, have you ever been to a, to a dead meeting at the Fed? Is the November meeting a dead meeting? I, th- I, I No, I don't think it's a dead meeting. I do think that um, uh, no meetings are really dead. I, I don't know why the market seems to want to insist on that, but uh, I don't think they're dead. I mean, I think there are a lot of things going on at the November meeting. You know, it's right around the election, and they're right. going to be it's going to be it's going to be nervousness there, and there's a lot of uncertainty right. about the election, a lot of uncertainty about government regulation in general, and so that does impinge that uncertainty impinges upon the committee and makes them nervous to uh, to do anything particularly dramatic. But it's not a dead meeting by any means. Professor, help us here with a cottage industry known as the neo-fisherian debate. There's a way that the Fed does business. You've pushed against that constructively and with grace for years. And the reigning theme is we've got to go back not to Stanley Fisher, but Irving Fisher of another time where policy can depress rates and create disinflation and deflation. Where are you on the divide? Are you traditionalist with an orthodox Fed theory? Or do you think there's something germane to this idea that uh, we've, we've, we've brought on our disinflation? Boy, that's a, that's a, that's, we could talk about this for hours, but we I are, would say... Well, we, our two guests just canceled, <laughs> so we're going for hours, Charlie. I see. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Uh, no, I, I do think it is interesting. Um, I think that I'm kind of sitting on the fence a bit. I'm, I'm a traditionalist in some ways, very neoclassical economist, as you know. Um, but this neo-fisherian view of the world where everything's driven by expectations of inflation and... Um, and the Fisher equation, which is that real interest rates plus expected inflation equals with a nominal interest rate. And if you keep real interest rates, real nominal rates uh, very low and the real rate doesn't change very much, then you can't ha- expect any other outcome than low inflation. 
I think those are, it's a very interesting idea, and um, actually I put some credence in it, but I wouldn't put the predominance of my probabilities there. Well said, well said. Uh, uh, Scarlett, should we ask the difficult questions for Charles Plasher? I think we need are to. Are you ruder than me this morning? Well, no, I'm never okay. ruder than you. Launch. But, uh, <laughs> President Plasser, I need to ask you I can't. I can't wait with that introduction. <laughs> What's here coming next? We need to ask you about Donald Trump and what he said at the debate this week. He mentioned that the Fed is doing political. He says Janet Yellen, he basically hinted that Janet Yellen needs to be replaced, that he's going to kick her out as soon as he becomes president. And the Fed is inflating asset bubbles across the board. Is there any truth to what he's saying? Well, I think there, there are a couple of couple of questions there. <laughs> Neither one I'm very polite, but that's okay. Uh, I, I no, <laughs> just, just, just easy. Anyway, so one, it is unusual for a presidential candidate to talk personally about a, a Fed chair. But I'd like I'd like to to make a point here, and that is is that the Fed has been under attack for the last four or five years by all sorts of groups, uh, and both left and right for that matter. And the Fed would like to remain apolitical, but it's becoming increasingly difficult for it to do so. If you look at the reforms in Congress for the Fed, most of those reforms, some of them are better than others, but many of them are actually aimed at making the Fed a more political institution. Congress has attacked the Fed. They, uh, Tom, you well know that in, in last fall, in October, I mean, uh, of 2015, they passed a transportation bill that said we can't decide to do about fiscal policy and funding the transportation bill, so we're going to make the Fed pay for it. And so it raided the Fed's balance sheet. And before that, the Consumer Financial Protection Agency was funded by the Fed. So there's a broad scope of right. people interested in making and putting what I think at risk, Fed independence, and making it more political. Right. All of that, I think, is bad, and I think Donald Trump's comment about that kind of reflects what's going on in Congress. So we shouldn't be quite as surprised as we think. Uh, your second question, um, uh, I forgot. What was well, the I forgot it, too, so we'll move on. <laughs> Scarlett, Scarlett does that, Charlie. Charlie, what is critical here is esteemed public servants like Glenn Hubbard and Martin Feldstein can't climb on Trump economics. Now, you're not as visible as they are within the executive branch, but can Charlie Plosser find anything constructive, unlike Dean Hubbard and Professor Feldstein, in Trump economics? Is there a message there we should listen to? Well, you know, I, I think with anybody's economic programs, there are parts and pieces of it which you can find acceptable and others that you can't. And certainly I think that Trump's um, uh, thinking about taxes and about reforms and reducing regulation are things that uh, have a positive ring to them, I think, and are probably right. Uh, certainly on the other side of the coin, uh, it doesn't sound like uh, we're going to be facing less regulation and lower taxes uh, with Hillary Clinton. Um, so I think there are there are pieces of anybody's program that you can find acceptable. The question is sort of, you know, how you put all the pieces together and, and are you comfortable with the whole package? And that's uh, that's much more difficult to do. I'm, I, obviously, I'm a free trader, as yeah. you can imagine, Tom, and a lot of the the discussion today in politics about trade, I find right. not very informed well, or not very helpful. So, okay. it, <laughs> Professor, we have to leave it there. Charles Plosser on free trade, his support of TPP. Who you put your trust in 
matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. This is a real pleasure. Since early summer this year, we have taken a greater focus on productivity. I've told you much about Chad Jones out at Stanford. We now speak to the engineer from North Dakota at the Booth School, Chicago. Chad Severson is professor of economics at Booth and brings the twisted thinking of engineering to the productivity de debate. Professor, wonderful to have you here. How is economics different when you're an engineer? Well, thank you for having me. And I guess uh, engineering just gives you a perspective on sort of the nuts and bolts, shall we say, I guess literally to some extent of how uh, production works, and so that's how I approach my right. research is understanding things for, at that sort of level of detail. I look at it like Jean-Claude Trichet, the engineer from Europe, and that, that you look at the ratios in productivity, we've got capital dynamics, labor dynamics, and the residual, let's call it total factor, productivity. So three ratios, six moving parts. What are yep. you most focused on within those dynamics now? So right now, uh, productivity is the big thing. And actually, it's, it, labor productivity is the number that gets a lot of attention, which is focuses on two of those things, which is total factor productivity and the capital intensity, so capital per unit labor. And the product of those things, labor productivity, as you know, has been growing uh, more slowly than it used to, and that's been a concern for a lot of folks. I mean, I look at this, and, and what we know, and I think what, uh, whether pro, amateur, sophisticated, whatever knows, is technology folds into this. Um, to, me, the, we, the, the, to me, the answer, Professor, is we really don't know, and we're going to wait decades to really find out what's going on. Do you share that caution that we can't rush to judgment? Yes, it takes a long time. Uh, we know it from the historical record that productivity has sort of slow-moving uh, waves to it. And so these waves can last a decade or more, and it can take you, you know, you can be in one for years before you even realize that the, the average pace of productivity growth has changed. So, for example, we seem to have been in a productivity slowdown now since around 2004 or five. It really didn't come on anyone's radar until maybe two or three years ago. So right. we're just recognizing it's happening. Happening, And on the other hand, you know, we might hit a turning point soon, but we might not recognize that for years to come. You know Chad Jones' wonderful, simple, somewhat mathy textbook, Economic Growth. I believe it's in its third edition. It's iconic, folks. It's taught all across economics around, around the world. Is, is the mathematics that Chad Jones has in that book that goes back to solo 56, 57, is that book still germane or are you guys in new territory when you try well, to figure the, out what's the, going on? Yeah, so the, the framework that we use to measure these things, to in, in particular how we measure total factor productivity, that really, uh, so Chad's book has that exactly and that stuff does go back to Solo's uh, 19, work in the late 1950s. 
And so the, the framework that we use to measure things is the same. Uh, what changes over time is how we're trying to explain where those uh, where that growth in productivity comes from, because that varies over time, and our ability to to measure yeah. it and to understand where it comes from has changed over time. Especially as we've gotten more and more data, sort of at the at the company level, at the production line level, we understand how those things now okay. add up to that total factor productivity number we see for the entire economy. Let me give you the yesterday level, which is the back and forth on my iPhone messaging instead of picking up the phone. Is that in your math? So anything that's, that's a great question. So the issue is how do we measure output? And the, and the thing is, yeah, so if you like your iPhone because it does all these fantastic things for you, and that shows up in what you're willing to pay for that iPhone, and, that, and then Apple recognizes that and charges you for that willingness to pay, all that goes into our national statistics, into GDP, and therefore eventually into the productivity numbers. So the key is to be captured in productivity, someone's got to be paying for it. That's that's the and, and so if people have a willingness to pay yeah. for this newfangled these newfangled ways of doing things on our smartphones, that should be captured in our productivity right, numbers. Right. What can be the policy prescription? I mean, Alan Greenspan was way out front with the productivity boom of another time and place. Can President Trump or President Clinton and can the elites of Washington add to productivity? Well, it's hard to just turn the dial on it, obviously. Yep. Uh, in the end, all total factor productivity growth comes from innovation. We either figure out cheaper ways to make the things we make now or we figure out how to make new things that people value. Mm -hmm. And there's a, you know, a fair amount of evidence that innovation has spillover effects and so you want to support basic research, you want to support sort of ecosystems that encourage innovation. You know, we don't want just one Silicon Valley in the U.S. Mm -hmm. If we could have 20 of them, that would be better. That sort of thing. So innovation's a big deal. And then on the on the capital intensity side, you know, we we need to keep up with our oh. capital investment as well, which has been unusually low the last few years. He's Harris Professor of Economics at Booth School of Chicago. Chad Syverson with us. This is really something, folks. We're trying to bring a cogent discussion of productivity. I see so much misinformation out there. It's wonderful to have Professor Syverson uh, on us uh, again with the Booth School uh, Chicago. Real joy, our Bloomberg Markets most influential uh, summit. All sorts of people to talk to. Abby Joseph Cohn and Richard Clarida with me in a moment. I saw Dean Hubbard from Columbia uh, wander by uh, a bit. And a chief executive officer is with us with truly one of the great stories of American uh, industry. Mark Fields is joining us. He had a Brooklyn accent. His parents dragged him to Paramus, New Jersey. And from there through Rutgers and Harvard, he wandered over. Uh, to the Ford Motor in arguably the best succession process I've seen, and yet there's nothing like the day Alan Mulally walks out the door and you are the chief executive officer. What changed for you with all your preparation when Alan left? Well, actually, there wasn't a whole lot of change, and the reason for that was uh, when Alan came in, uh, we, uh, we basically sat side by side as we, we put our one Ford plan together. 
Uh, I then had the opportunity, you know, to run North and South America for many years and then become COO. So it was it was a really great process that uh, that Alan and, and, and Bill Ford yeah. put together. So it was very natural. What's extraordinary about it, Mark, is so many people screw up the process that to see it successful uh, is, is, is something. Full disclosure, folks, we like to do this on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance where we're fair and balanced. I'm from a massive Ford family. Would you explain to me how a Ford Fairlane from 1957, the beloved family Ford is $46,995 collection now? That, it's extraordinary what some of these antique cars go for. Built to last. Yeah, built built to, for I, tough. Built, built for tough. I, 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 would, <laughs> I would say so, but um, we should have kept the car to say the least. What I noticed in the debate, you don't handle the Twitter account, I know Marissa handles it for you, <laughs> is you guys went right out with a tweet on job employment over what Mr. Yeah. Trump was saying yeah. on the debate. You, your company was more aggressive about saying, no, you're wrong than anybody else. State the case for trade with Mexico when you hear what Mr. Trump states. Well, we think it's really important as a company to make sure the facts get out there. And you know, facts are stubborn things. And in a political environment, a presidential election, sometimes that can get obscured. So we're just out there with the facts. And the facts are, you know, our commitment to investment here in the U.S. and the American worker is as strong as it's ever been. I mean, since 2011, we created 28, more than 28,000 jobs here in the U.S. We've invested more than $12 billion. We have more hourly workers producing cars here in the United States than any other automaker, and we produce more vehicles in the U.S. What's your body other. count now versus the carnage that, that you guys avoided, I might point out, thank you, Bill Ford, uh, of cars are Steve Ratner and cars are and all that. What's your, what's your labor count now versus then? Well, our labor count is down actually just a bit. I mean, during the, during the Great Recession, when we restructured the business, and uh, mm -hmm. as you know, we did not have to go into bankruptcy like some of our competitors, we uh, probably had to say goodbye to a little over about 50% of our hourly workforce. And since then, you know, we've hired, as we've said, over 28,000 back. So probably uh, uh, slightly less, but we're a growing business now and a much more profitable one, which we then can keep reinvesting in our products and here in our home market yeah. as well as around the world as a multinational. I live in an Uber right now. I'm not in enough Ford Ubers. What are you going to do to compete with the Suburban in Uberland? I mean, there's, there's the market. The market's there. And you guys act fast, is what I see. What are you going to do to own Uber? Well, first off, the way we're thinking about the business, we're, we're going through this very important transition in our company's history from being an auto company to an auto and mobility company. And the reason for that is people's mindsets are changing from just owning vehicles to owning them and sharing them, and particularly sharing them in you know, large urban areas like, right. the, 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 like the New York area. And so for us, we're gonna, it, it's not about going from an old business, meaning our core business, to a new business, mm -hmm. this you know, mobility and emerging opportunities areas. It's just moving to a bigger one. So we're gonna keep our core business healthy, we're gonna invest in it, we're gonna keep it really strong, but we're also thinking about the usage of our products. So as we think about that, we've made investments in, in a dynamic shuttle company in San Francisco that we're gonna scale globally. This is a this is a, a company that uh, has a van that users can call up on mm -hmm. demand versus a fixed route, and so for us, we're really exploring how do we create more of these mobility services to make people's lives easier, but also at the same time create new businesses. As an American manufacturer, you figured out fit and finish in the aesthetic, almost like a Steve Jobs mindset. 
earlier, I would suggest, than anyone else. That takes manpower. Are you going to build up the research capability in the United States, like your recent agreement with the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. or do you have to do it on a global platform, again, migrating U.S. intellectual jobs abroad, or do you do both? Well, we're, we're a global multinational, and it's really important for us to do business in the markets that we, that we sell in, but you know, clearly the bulk <clears throat> of our R&D is done here in our home market in the United States. Here in North America, for example, 90-95% 90, of our R&D is done here in the U.S. versus other places right. in North America. And that's really important for us. And in the case of you know, R&D, let's use autonomous vehicles as an example. We've been at this for over 10 years, more than anybody else. We, we participated in the first DARPA challenge, which was a government-sponsored challenge for mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles. And the bulk of that development is done here. We've opened up a big research and innovation center in Palo Alto. So we're also going to where some of that talent is, as well as networking into our other research centers mm -hmm. around the world. How do you respond to Tesla? Not so much as a unit competitor, but as an innovator. Do you, are you yelling and screaming at your claim 5 a.m. or whatever it is, 4 a.m. <laughs> Malali meeting? Did you get rid of that meeting or do you no, still have No, we actually still it? have that you Thursday still, meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great yeah, way I'm to already up for three hours by the time you have it. I don't have any sympathy for it. How do you respond to the innovation and the shock of Tesla? Well, first off, as a company, innovation is in our blood. It is who we are. I'll go with that. I mean, it goes back to Henry Ford. He was the great disruptor of his day. And when you fast forward, think about our innovations literally over the past you know, four or five years, our EcoBoost engines, our sync in-car uh, entertainment and communication system, our, our all-aluminum F-150. I'll go with the all-aluminum, you're way so, out front on that, so, absolutely. You know, and what we're doing in the company is we're really encouraging this innovation mindset. Mm -hmm. And it really starts with us as a senior team encouraging our organization right. to ask two questions. Challenge custom and question tradition and don't take anything. I got 30 seconds left. Do you still need to advertise on Sunday football? How are you going to get your message out in the new digital media? Well, we, uh, when you look at how we spend Besides our media, rooting for the Detroit Lions, I get that. And, and, and also I'm a Giants fan too, so I, I, well, I, 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 the Lions are my second favorite you, team. I, no one in the Ford so, family speaks to them. So this is really about, and Bill knows it, but uh, <laughs> This is really about understanding how consumers are consuming media. So we are on digital, we're on mobile, but on uh, sports events are still the thing that people That's tune still the into. Thing. What are you going to do with Facebook? Other major multinationals quickly here are, are limited. Will you stay on Facebook? A absolutely. We've actually launched vehicles on Facebook as opposed to auto shows. Okay, Mark Fields, never enough time. Thank you so much. Mark Fields, he is with the Ford Motor Company. From our Bloomberg most uh, Bloomberg Markets most influential summit, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.